there's no pressure in telling you to bring us a good word. <laughs> happens every time. Um, I don't know if it's because we were trying so hard to sing it. I don't think so. But I, I, I hope that Lynn will come back and sing the Generous Giver song because as we were praying for the persecuted church, that was I, what I heard in my head was that on and on, like, you know, nothing, nothing separates us. <sighs> Can I pray for you? Okay. Lord, thank you so much for Gordy, that he endeavors so wholeheartedly to hear from you and to be faithful to bring the word that you have meant for us as a community. And that's my sense today. That's super interesting, is that this is a word for us together. And I actually don't know what he's going to say, so I'm going to put that out there in faith that maybe that's from the Holy Spirit. But so often in our culture, we're focused on what is the word for me, for my spiritual walk, for my spiritual journey. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us together as a church. Would you encourage us as a body? Would you strengthen us as a, as a, as a family and as a unit today? And I ask... Uh, I ask for protection and, and, uh, and I come against anything that doesn't belong to you, Lord Jesus, that would come in the way of this message coming. And I, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that will help to bring it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Joanna. Good morning, everyone. You all look so beautiful today. I think the light of the sun kind of shining on you is kind of just amplifying all that goodness I see. So good. And I hope you enjoyed your extra hour today. I did too, because we had our granddaughters over for a sleepover. So we got an extra hour with them. That was pretty cool. And um, we're talking about prophetic imagination. And what the heck is that? Well, in the fall series we're doing Sharpening Our Focus, I felt that for at least a month or so, leading up to Advent, we needed to address this topic. And it's very informed by the lectionary. Uh, a lot of our lectionary readings are from the prophets, and so it's a good idea if you're going to talk about prophetic imagination to go to the prophets. And so what do we mean by that? I guess to explain it, the question would be, how do you stay focused as a follower of Christ, when it seems that evil is winning. I'm going to say that again. How do you stay focused when it seems that evil is winning? You've done all the right things, and yet it seems the wrong side wins. We've, prom we've been promised abundant life, and Paul even put it in words, we're destined to reign in life. And yet, sometimes it just feels that didn't happen. And it happens in so many different ways, doesn't it? It happens in the broader church with what we see, with what we just witnessed on this video. The number of Christians who are suffering for their faith. We see it when high-profile Christian leaders that we admired and trusted fall morally. 
wiping out often their whole ministries and churches with it. Church splits over ugly power struggles or doctrinal conflict. That doesn't sound like the kingdom to me. Or a divorce happens in your family. Or someone dies of cancer prematurely. A child becomes a drug addict. Or a loved one commits suicide. Or it's just stuff we see all around us in our city as we take the 14 bus. Homelessness, addiction. And then there's our own battles that we feel we're losing. Our battles with sin, addiction. Where we're, we get in conflicts with those that we love and we hurt each other. And we feel like, give it, we feel like giving up in despair. And many do. Or if they don't appear to inside, they've given up. They, they surrender to a dis disillusionment. We become jaded, cynical, disheartened, discouraged. Some of us resort to addictions. Netflix. Nothing wrong with Netflix. Netflix has been a blessing to us, but it can become an addiction, can't it? Chemical addictions, alcohol, porn, um, false comforts, to try to deal with the pain. We're not, we're not wired for that. And there are few things that cause us to lose our focus, like the, the feeling that the wrong side is win winning, that we're not getting ahead, that we're going backwards, not forward. So how do we stay focused in those times? And sometimes it just feels like I said, like evil wins. And you say, well, Gordy, no, no, no. It's not, not it, it seems like evil is winning. But it's interesting the language that Jesus used when he was betrayed by Judas in the garden and, the, and they came and arrested him. And he, and he says these words to him. Listen to what he said. Every day I was with you in the temple courts. He said, am I leading a rebellion that you would come to me with swords and clubs? I was with you every day in the temple and you didn't lay a hand on me. But then he said this, this is your hour when darkness reigns. The Son of God said that. This is your hour when darkness reigns. And I would like to argue that every disciple of Jesus has to face that in their discipleship. And I believe that the way we stay focused, the provision that God has given us in those times, is a prophetic imagination. I've stolen that term from Walter Brueggemann, one of my heroes of faith these days, seems to be a sane voice in this whole understanding of prophetic. So the question is, what is it? What is a prophetic imagination? And so let's turn to the prophets, and our lectionary reading today informs us. It's a book, uh, it's, a, it's a prophet named Habakkuk who is not only a strange name, but probably one of the least known prophets in the Bible. In fact, one of the least known authors in the Bible. Relatively obscure Old Testament prophet. So little is known about Habakkuk. In fact, of all the Old Testament prophets, we have the least amount of information given on him. Usually we have some information that prophets give, like Isaiah or Hosea, that talks about their life a little bit, or their family of origin, or what their their occupation was, but for Habakkuk, we have nothing. 
except his name. But his name's interesting. Do you know what his name means in the Hebrew? To embrace. And I have a sense that he's quite anonymous because he's all of us. That we're all embraced by God. That's our identity, remember? I think we've said that a few times, haven't we? That's our identity, one who's loved by God. But we are also called as to be God followers to embrace. But that embrace is, has limits. Every one of us are called to embrace a, a concern, a, 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 a people group. Uh, something is on our heart. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. But, so we're called to embrace and be embraced. Just kind of, Karen kind of summed it up last week, didn't she? With our focus is to love God and love our neighbor. Of course, we can't do that unless we know that we're embraced by God. So this is Habakkuk's name. So we, don't, we only know that about him, and we also know his inner life. So we don't know much about his outer life, but we hear a lot about his inner life, and that's what I like. We're going to go into his inner life, because that's you and me. So Habakkuk opens up with this massive complaint, and he opens with these words, the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. But that word prophecy in the Hebrew literally means the burden, the, the load I'm carrying, the, the thing that's on my heart. Every one of us are called to embrace that thing that's on our heart. We're embraced by God, and then God gives us that burden. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a good fit. Unfortunately, when evil is winning, it starts to feel too heavy for us. The genocide of Rwanda, the Holocaust of the Second World War, when we begin to see evil just rule, just reign. The load begins to feel too heavy in those times. So how do we keep that in a place where we can bear it? And the burden we carry could be a concern at this time. And, and it's sometimes seasons, isn't it, of our lives. It could be a loved one, a son or a daughter, a spouse, a sibling, a parent, circumstances at work, the lack of good drinking water, housing on First Nations communities. We're still battling that in Lower Post after all these years. It could be the lack of quality child care for children of preschool age or the opiate crisis, the housing crisis, the cost of living in our city, the lack of quality care for seniors or refugees and immigrants. But it's like this yoke comes, this burden. That's what he's talking about. He had a burden. And so here's what he says. This is what he begins to process. Let's enter into Habakkuk's inner life. He says, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence. I looked he, the, the, the word violence up in the Hebrew, and it means violence. Just means just people doing bad stuff to each other. And you can violate physically, but you, you can violate by crossing boundaries and verbally, mentally abusing so he's, he's observing all of these bro this brokenness in relationships around him, and it's, it's overwhelming him. Why do you make me look at injustice? 
Now who's he talking to? He's talking to God. Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? This is like a, a rant at God. Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Speaking of Netflix, Kathleen and I have enjoyed a series called Line of Duty. I don't know if any of you have seen that. But it's a story about this guy who's transferred. He kind of has a mishap, mishap on his police job. So he's transferred to the anti-corruption unit, or what they call the AC, of an English police force. And the idea, why would a police force have an anti-corruption unit? Because there's corruption in the police, right? What does that say about our, our culture? So they have this, this unit, and it's, it's really dicey, and it's nuanced, and there's all kinds of layers of corruption because some corruption happens in the anti-corruption unit. And it's a ridiculously hard job because you have to go undercover against your own peers, your own officers, pretend you're working together on a curse, uh, on a case, rather, to try to uncover corruption. And it just shows how convoluted the system gets. And it shows, it's, it's a beautiful, amazing picture, I should say. Not beautiful, but amazing picture of, the, of how twisted evil is in every part of our society. So Habakkuk declares, in fact, one of the translations, that like, might be the message, at the header of this passage says, justice is a joke. And, there's, and so there's sarcasm, there's, there's anger. He's ranting at God. And this is a form of prayer that we could call lament. It's a very important part of prayer. You read in the Psalms. There's a whole book called Lament or Crying, the book of Lamentations. What, what Habakkuk is doing is he's lamenting to God. And you too kind of captures this kind of despair with a song called Peace on Earth. Some of you have heard it. It's, it's, it's a song. There's, there's, it's utter sarcasm and reaction to all the songs that come out at Christmas time about peace on earth. And the words go, heaven on earth. We need it now. I'm sick of all this hanging around. Sick of sorrow. Sick of pain. Sick of hearing again and again that there's going to be peace on earth. Where I grew up, there weren't many trees. Where there was, we'd tear them down and use them on our enemies. They say that what you mock will surely overtake you and you become a monster. So the monster will not break you. And it's already gone too far. Who said if you go in hard, you won't get hurt? Jesus, can you take the time to throw a drowning man a line? Peace on earth. Tell the ones who hear no sound, whose sons are living in the ground. Peace on earth. No who's or why's, no one cries like a mother cries for peace on earth. She never got to say goodbye to see the color in his eyes. Now he's in the dirt. Peace on earth. What's going on here? Just shows how convoluted this, this thing with evil is and this, this world we live in. It's, it's interesting. For the first time as we're approaching, uh, and I know we have Robin here up from Germany, but for the first time we're approaching Remembrance Day with a German living in our home. It's just been an incredible wake-up call for me. Because, you know, we get into our jingoism about, you know, how heroic our soldiers were and they, they fought the Nazis and, you know, and I'm all of a sudden aware of this person that I love that's in my home. 
And she, and she told me, even from school, she's, she's saying they're, they're giving one side of the story. And in her own family, she had grandparents who sheltered and rescued people from Hitler and from the Nazis. And so could we remember the heroic Germans who stood up during this time? Bonhoeffer, Schindler. I think that's a good idea to watch Schindler's List for a Remembrance Day. People that stood up. And I, t I told her, I said, we, I don't only grieve and weep for the veterans of the Allies. I weep for the veterans of the German army, that for everybody that suffered and died. Peace on earth. So lament is a practice of worship. What's going on here? Is there encouragement in sight? I would like to offer that Habakkuk is actually, even though he sounds so negative, he's operating in faith by recognizing the practice of lament. Lament is a practice of worship that helped him avoid two extremes. One is naive optimism on one hand, and the other is hopeless despair. So let me explain one example. Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, describes what he called the Stockdale complex with veterans in the Second World or, or in the Vietnam War. And he describes an interview with Jim Stockdale, a former prisoner of war in Vietnam, who was tortured for over 20 years, and for seven years he fought to stay alive and to keep others alive. So Collins asked Stockdale, so who didn't make it in these POW camps? And his answer was, which surprised me, was the optimists. I'd always thought that the optimists were the ones who made it out, but he said what he was describing was a naive optimism. It was the ones who said, oh, we'll be out by Christmas. But they didn't. They weren't. Oh, we'll be out by Easter. But they weren't. And they ended up dying of a broken heart. So gritty faith requires a gritty reality. We must never confuse our faith and hope that in the end all will be well with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts in our current reality. So this is what Habakkuk is doing. He's facing reality right in... He's confronting it right in the face through his lament. And lament gives us the resources to confront reality and live in the messy middle without losing our faith. Lament is an expression of faith. And a lot of it has to do with using our imagination. And I want to show how God brings Habakkuk's imagination into the story, a prophetic imagination. So after his rant, we move to chapter 2. By the way, God answers him and says, Oh, by the way, what I'm going to do about all the injustice and crap you're seeing in your city, probably Jerusalem, oh, I'm just going to allow the Babylonians to come in and they're just going to wipe you all out. That'll take care of it. Well, then his rant ups it a notch. I mean, <laughs> he's really mad at God now. So that's kind of how the rest of the chapter goes. So chapter 2 He's finally, he's done. He's had his say, right? He says this, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts, and I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. So the first step towards a prophetic imagination is you create space 
to see. You stop. So, so vineyard 19, or 2019, 2018, 2017, all about Sabbath and pace and creating space and healthy, emotionally healthy spirituality, the offices, spiritual direction, taking a retreat, whatever it takes to see. So what he does is he gets on his watch, he gets on his, his rampart to keep himself grounded. It is so important to see contemplatively in our time, to have eyes to see in a world that, where evil seems to be winning. It's a guy named Greg Gay who wrote the book The Way of the Modern World. I think he's still a prophet, Regent, not sure. It's an, it's an amazingly analytical book about the, 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 the world as we see it, politics, education, law enforcement, everything. And how that the assumption of the world is that God is not there. Even if we believe in God, that God is not engaged and not involved. And the whole world system works that way. And I read it and got really depressed. It's very accurate, except for one thing. I would argue that God is very much at work in the world. But you have to have eyes to see. You have to have contemplative eyes to see. So... Habakkuk, we don't have time to get into the details, but this watch that he set was creating space. I mean, I'm having to tell pastors in spiritual direction, could you just take two minutes a day for silence? Because silence, you give up control. Even when we're talking, even in prayer, we're still in control. Silence is giving up control. Creating space just to wait on God and say, Lord, I can do nothing. I wait on you. And this is what Habakkuk did. He said, I'm going to wait on you, God. I'm going to listen and I'm going to be attentive. And so the Lord replied and he said, write down this revelation and make it plain on tables so that the herald may run who reads it. I love this because God doesn't rebuke Habakkuk for ranting at him. But he says, you need an, a prophetic imagination. You need a vision. You don't see the whole story. You don't see the whole perspective. Now that you've brought your complaint to me, let me give you some perspective. And he receives this vision. And it's kind of later on in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. But the vision is, are you ready for it? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a vision of God is coming. God is coming, and God's heaven is going to marry earth, and everything is going to be made right. However, God is coming at the right time. And so when he tells him, hold that thought, when he tells him to write down the message and make it clear on tab tablets, it's a, it's a clear signpost so that people who are carrying the message would have something to run with. How many need something to run with? Right? That's what God is giving him, is this prophetic imagination with all the crap, all the garbage, all the mess, all the, 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 the indications that evil is winning. There's still something you run with. That prophetic vision and imagination that God gives him. And he tells him, first of all, to write it. Make it public. There's something about when you take something you say and you write it down, changes the whole ballgame. Have you ever noticed that? I noticed that. 
when I talk about something or even preach about something, but when I post it on a blog or get it out there, it just changes the ballgame. And so, and, and there's a risk there. You put yourself out there, right? And God's asking Habakkuk to do that. He's saying, he's saying take a risk, put this out there. I know, I know it seems like an insult in the face of everything you're seeing around you. Just put this out there. The earth is going to be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That justice will win. Righteousness will win. Goodness will win. Love will win. Put it out there. Be bold in the face of everything going the other way. Right? Put it out there. And there's something about writing that slows you down. I started writing my prayers and journaling a few years ago, and I found that when I write, it's, it slows down my thoughts, and I'm able to pay attention to myself better when I do that. Now, some of you may have other ways to do that, but I think for prophetic imagination, writing or art or some kind of expression with your body is really important to slow you down. For some of you, it's music, but slowing you down to pay attention to your heart and so in Habakkuk's day, to inscribe it in stone was a real investment of time and money and effort, and there was a sense of permanence about it. But it gave people something to run with. It reduced the confusion. It re restored clarity. And so our, our vision is the kingdom of God is filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. And... Then God goes on to say to him, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it lingers, wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. Now I want you to look at this word here. For the revelation awaits at the appointed time and it speaks of the end. And that's kind of an accurate translation, but the problem is that often in Hebrew... The words are so much richer than we can put into one word in English. It actually means to breathe. It breathes. It's the, it's the verb form of the noun ruach. So it's buach, and it literally means it breathes. This vision breathes. And there's a picture of groaning, of, of sighing, of panting, of even birth pangs that are coming. There's the ruach, the breath of the Holy Spirit coming through this. And it's like it joins with our lament, those birth pangs of the Holy Spirit as, as Habakkuk is grieving, is lamenting. Rather than reversing the kingdom of being negative and unbelieving, what you're doing is you're giving birth to that vision of the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Paul said all of creation groans. So when you speak and you lament and you cry out for that kingdom to come when evil is winning, you join not only with the Holy Spirit who is groaning and bringing birth, but you join with all of creation for the new heaven and the new earth to come. It breathes through all creation. And it's an appointed time. It will come. And so we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Breathe, breathe, breathe. Every time I breathe as a child of God, I'm bringing the kingdom of God. So the vision is 
I love what the New Living says. The vision is for a future time. It describes the end. It seems slow in coming. Wait patiently. For it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. And this, this passage has always intrigued me. It, it may be slow, but it won't delay. It's kind of like this paradox. You notice that? Even the message picks this up. The vision message is a witness pointing to what's coming. It aches. See, he, Peterson picks this up. It aches for the coming. It can hardly wait. And it doesn't lie. It seems slow and coming. It's on its way. It'll come right on time. So I'm doing my prayer walk through this area. I walk through this area every Wednesday. If I can, I'll fast part of the day. Go for a prayer walk. Pray for you guys. Pray for the church. End up on Wall Street. Walk up McGill. I always stop at McGill Grocery. Kind of have a little conversation with the, the dude in there. He's a great guy. And he's, he's just been asking me these amazing questions. So I ended up talking about our, our journey with Lower Post, which has been 25 years. The guy was so, so into this. As I, and he just kept asking me questions. And so I, I began to talk to him about how the grandparents, the First Nations grandparents, are parenting their grandchildren because there's a lost generation in between. And, you know, the whole story of residential school, when people came out of residential school, they didn't know how to parent. They'd never been in a family. And, and so there was a whole generation of children that were lost. And then the grandparents, like Charlie Pete, who a good friend of mine in his 80s in Lower Post, for 30 years was on Skid Road came to the Lord, was baptized in Lower Post and has been clean. He's in his 80s now. This has been 20 years. And he's parenting his grandchildren. Where are his kids? Well, now they're where he was. They're in addiction on the streets. So Murray Sinclair, when he was asked by CBC about what his goals were in the Truth and Reconciliation, he said, well, you, he said, non-Native people have five-year goals. We don't do that. We think generations. We, we're going to give this time. Our communities are full, and you'll see this on the video that we have on our website. Our, our communities have pedophiles because they themselves were abused in residential school. And so we're including them in the healing process. Otherwise, everybody would be in jail. Evil is so, has so infiltrated through this corrupt system that happens. So why does it take so long and why is it so slow? You see, the whole, our whole understanding of the kingdom of God is when it's over, it's over. This is a time of grace. This is a time of mercy where we can turn to God. Peter said he's not slow concerning his promise, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. So we live in this already not yet where it seems so slow, but it's, because, it's not because God is slow, it's because God is merciful. He's not willing, listen to me, he's not willing that any should perish. You know what? This is what I say to the Calvinists. He's not willing that any should perish. Any. This perverted, corrupt idea of God that he somehow predestined some to be damned and some to be saved. 
has so twisted the character of God. I just can hardly stand it. It's just not the kingdom. It's not what Jesus came to give. And so Habakkuk finishes by saying, see, the enemy's puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by faithfulness. So let me ask you, who's this enemy that's puffed up? I'd like to argue that it's the false self, you and me. It's that part of us that tries to find our identity from what we've achieved, by what we possess, and by what other people think about us. That's what upright means, is your desires are towards God. Bent means your desires are towards what people think about you, what kind of impression you make, right? And you think about that. And you want people to know how big your offering was, and, you know, the pharisaical thing, right? The false self always is there. I love Solzhenitsyn, and I can quote that till the day I die. The line between good and evil is not between East and West and Germany and the alleys. The line between good and evil was right down the middle of every human heart. That false self that's constantly, and it puffs itself up like an adder, like a snake. That's literally the Hebrew. There. It's like this puffed up, false puffed up, Self, make himself look bigger and fiercer, impress you. And Peter Scazzaro writes how that the, the first Adam puffed himself up, wanted to be God, wouldn't accept his limits. But Jesus, the second Adam, when he came, he accepted his limits. He refused to jump off the temple to impress the crowds, turn the stones to bread, and fall down and worship to have the kingdoms of the world. He accepted his limits. Believing and faith says that God can work within my limits. I don't have to go beyond them. That's what living by faith is. And he talks about how that pe people who are get older, if they don't accept their limits, they become really grumpy. Old people who don't accept their limits are grumpy people. I don't want to be a grumpy old guy. I want to have fun as I head towards that final destination, touchdown. Right? And get a few first downs on the way. So, and what is that word faithfulness? It says, just, this, this, this obscure little prophet in the Old Testament is, gives the one verse that becomes the cornerstone of our New Testament faith. The just will live by faith. That word faithfulness, well, it's a, it's a very nuanced word again. It, it means God's faithfulness. It means my faith in God's faithfulness. It means my faith in God. It, it's just, it's multi-nuanced. But basically, it's choosing to believe when I'm losing. When, when it seems like I'm losing, it's choosing to believe that God is good and all will be well. That beautiful song that Lynn sings. All will be well in the end. Lady of Julia of Norwich's words. All will be well. It's choosing to act on that. And so, John the Baptist 
They told him, everybody's leaving your church, John. Jesus got a new super mega church over there, and our numbers are dwindling. Offerings are going down. John says, well, I'm not going to try to make something happen. I'm not going to go on a big church marketing campaign. Don't you want your church to grow? Actually, no. <laughs> not my church. He recognized his limits. These limits, we all have talents and gifts. And Peter Scazzaro writes this beautifully, or says this beautifully in a podcast I read this, or listened to this week. Those who have limits, we have talents and gifts, but those are talents and gifts, but they're limits also. We have limits related to our family of origin, genes. We have, and we have to sleep. Did you notice that? Isn't that frustrating? I have to sleep. You know what's really frustrating, especially when you have a bunch of grandchildren? Huh? I have to go to the bathroom. So frustrating. I don't have time to go to the bathroom. Did you ever notice that as a parent? You have to eat. That's really frustrating. So we have to embrace our limits as an act of trust, refusing to become bloated, puffed up. We're not God. Embracing our limits is saying, I'm not God. God, you are God. Embracing limits means loving this church that God has given me. Jesus had to accept the disciples that God gave him. Peter the denier, Thomas the doubter, James and John, the sons of thunder, with this bad temper problem. Jesus said, thank you, Father, there are gifts you've given them to me. That's what he prayed in, in John 17. Thank you, there are gifts you've given to me. What are the limits in our ministry? And what is the gift of that? What are the limits of our church? And what's the gift in that? There's a humility that embraces our limits and says we're not God. Rather than being a beloved child of God, bloatedness says that's not enough. But the just will live by faith. So as we come to communion, the primary anchor for our faith is the cross as we remember the body and blood of Christ today. Where evil seems to be the most victorious. Now think about this. Where is the time in human history when evil won. Hmm? The most significant time that evil won. The, the most obvious time. Could I suggest it was when God himself came to earth and was brutally killed on a cross and he hung there and he said, God, why have you forsaken me? I would suggest that that is the most, the time when it seemed like evil had won and God felt forsaken by God. Okay, think about that. God felt forsaken by God, cried it out, actually declared it, kind of like Habakkuk's doing here. But what do we know? We know, because of the resurrection, we've seen the other side, we know that where God seemed to be the most absent was where God was most at work. That's what the cross tells us. The most loving, good person who ever lived on the planet, forgave, healed, said, this is how the kingdom comes, and all the disciples were all excited, woo this is great! This is beautiful, love your enemies, it's all going to be sweet, peachy keen, oh, hallelujah. And then, bam, we weren't ready for this. 
But we know the story wasn't finished. They thought it was. There was devastating, tra devastating trauma. But it's not over till it's over. Have you heard that? It wasn't finished. And we know that what seemed to be the, where God seemed to be the most absent, he was the most present in human history. So, what is faithfulness? What is steadfastness? The just shall live by faith. What does it look like? It's Mary, even after her beloved Jesus has died. It's her going with the other women to the tomb early in the morning to worship. It's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who everything's gone sideways, but they still make arrangements to deal with the mess and bury the body of Jesus. It's me and my siblings holding each other as my father's remains are lowered into the earth holding each other and saying to each other, this is not the end. It's waiting in the darkness. John Dawson wrote me in the middle of my nervous breakdown, and he said to me, I expect sweet wine to come from the crushed grapes, now waiting in the darkness. It's the Romanian political prisoners who survived through horrible suffering by doing art on the walls of their prisons. Their arts, the music, the writing. It's holding on to that prophetic imagination. So I love that song. We haven't sung it for a while, but I'd love to do it again. The song where we sing, this is not the end. Isn't that an amazing song? This is not the end of us. We so need to hear that again and again. The story isn't finished. The story isn't finished. And sometimes... You're going to feel like evil is one. What I would say is don't give in to naive optimism, which can show up in drugs and addictions, but don't give in to hopeless despair, but enter into lament. Use the arts. Use your body and walk through it together with one another. Don't go through these things alone. So nurturing our prophetic imagination is essential for sustaining us when our story isn't finished by reminding us of the story that we're in. And it's ending. So even this, today I felt that we were to come to communion and be proactive um, as a prophetic act to get out of our seat and to come all the way to the front. And so what I'm going to ask that we do, and for those who are not physically able to do this, we're going to serve you communion where you are. But if you can physically come and kneel all across the front, what we'll do is we'll just take as many as we can to go across the front, and then if you're when you line up, if there's not enough room, just kind of wait, wait maybe in this area. And then when that group is done, they'll go out the sacristy and around the front. Joanna and Tay are going to serve you. Um, so we've only, I think, done this once before. We did it a few times. Did we? First okay. So the very first, I know it was the very first Sunday we did it as well. Yeah. yeah. I remember that the warden, uh, the Anglican warden yeah. came. And, yeah, and um, so I felt like this was just to be an act of prophetic imagination, to, to come to the table, to kneel, if you can, physically. If you can't, do it in your heart, wherever you are, when communion is served to you. And you're saying, my story isn't finished, Lord. And I want you to think about those places in your life where it seems evil is winning, maybe in your own life or where, what you see around you. And in the context of the unfinished story, what ways can you name this reality in the form of lament? A prayer, 
journaling, writing, drawing, music, or other art like Habakkuk did. And then having someone you trust pray with you after you've received communion so that you're not walking in this journey alone. And what does faith look like? Maybe faith is just reaching out to somebody. Maybe faith is just saying, hey, you know, I'm really walking through some stuff here and I need, I need, need you to pray with me. I just need you to be aware. Not asking you to fix it, but I just, just don't want to be alone in it. And uh, so we're going to go to communion. Um, so let's, let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come? I pray for my dear sisters and brothers today who are facing things in their life or things around them where just they've been discouraged that evil is winning. And we just say, let your kingdom come, Lord. We ask, Lord, that You would give us the capacity to just be with one another in our suffering, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those that weep. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. So I'm just going to invite uh, us to serve. If you need it physically brought to you,